Scared to Death is explicit in every way. Please take care while listening. Whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no heart, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps, Peepers, Roberts, and Annabelles. I'm Dan. Hello, Dan. I'm Lindsay. Lindsay, why do you have dinosaurs? They're not just dinosaurs, Dan. What are they? They are voodoo dino nugget stuffies. That? Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> we have the best fans who send in the coolest things. Um, so this, ha- I don't even know if I told you exactly how this happened. When we mm. were in Missoula for your stand-up show a few weeks ago, Yeah. Uh, Monroe, I took Monroe thrift shopping on Sunday. And I parked the car. And as I was getting out of the car, I hear, <gasps> and I was like, oh, what happened? And these so sweet girls, um, yeah. Booby and, Bri- and Briance. <laughs> I, don't, I can't remember their real names. I just remember because yeah. they've had shout outs before. She was like, oh my God, we've been looking for you in a totally not stalker way. Like it was so uh, cute. It was a complete kismet, total happenstance. And she's like, we have a gift for you. And then I laughed so hard because if you have ever had dino nuggets, you know that these are entirely accurate. <laughs> <laughs> so I have I have two more, but I have dino nugget voodoo dolls that are yeah, also wearing my hair now. What, you got like a stegosaurus? Dun, dun, and dun, what's dun. the other one? Can you lift that one up? It's a, like a brontosaurus. He is so cute. Oh, bum, cool. bum, 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 bum. So, super fun. I'm just going to hold on to them today if I need them. Okay. Uh, a couple quick announcements, and then we're into some very spooky stories. Spooky. Quick new merch announcement. So many of you have asked for it. So here it is. A Bad Magician shirt featuring all three Bad Magic pods. Are you a time sucker or a space lizard? Are you a creep or a peeper? Are you a dummy? You can pick up this new tee meant for only the most hardcore Bad Magic listeners at badmagicmerch.com. And then you uh, have, if you want to share, uh, remind people what our charity is this month. I do want to share, Dan. Thank you for asking. Mm -hmm. Uh, This month's charity is the Halo Dental Network. Uh, Of course, you know, I am a genius and I did not transfer over the amount. Let me tell you. Mm -hmm. We are donating $14,300 $14,300 with mm-hmm. another $1,600 set aside for the future of the Cummins Family Scholarship. Uh, the Halo Dental Network was founded by Dr. Brady Smith. And what they do is they are a coalition of dental professionals who donate their services to the dentally under served. I always want to say undeserved when I see that word. I know. Every single time, which is such a different Such a different picture. thing and such an unfortunate mishap because I did say that the first week and I was like, no, that's, it, that's not what I meant. I was joking about it on the Secret Sock this week. Underserved is, I realized, I'm like, you almost never see that word in print. No. It's, it's just not a common word. And, and it's, I think it's the exact, I, I can't confirm this 100%, but I think it's the exact same letters as if you were to put underdeserved, just a few rearranged. Uh, well, under... Yeah, well, well, I guess you'd yeah. have to, a D would be different. Mm-hmm. And underserved is two words. Un, undeserved is, I think, one word. <laughs> right, right. Who even says undeserved? You're under, I, th- I think it would say they were so undeserving of that award. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Anyways, anyway. neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, so anyways, there are a group of dental professionals providing services like dental implants, uh, veneers, fillings, crown work, all these really expensive 
dental needs yeah. that people have that they just can't afford. And if you want to learn more about it, you can visit halodentalnetwork.org. Not only could you choose to donate your own money, but you could also nominate someone that you know and love that might need some dental work to boost their confidence. Yeah, it's very cool. It's really exists. cool. And thanks again to Joe DeMeo for mm -hmm. uh, telling us about that charity. He's an old friend of ours, and I just really appreciate him pointing it out. Yes. Uh, how many stories do you have for us? Uh, I'm going to guess two. Oh, my God. Did I nail it? You are a genius. Okay, good. Are you telepathic? I am. Wow. Now I am. Wow. I'm telepathic now. That's unbelievable. You got a great haircut this week. Oh, thank you. You're looking real good. Thank you. You're welcome. And I and I love your uh, I love your thrift store <gasps> sweater that you found. It's a good, so great, great find. I love it so Very much. Very cute. Um, my two stories are um, such a a different story, a very different story from my first tale about the energy of a house. I don't want to say more than that right mm -hmm. now because it is going to take a little bit of setup for me to explain where we're going and I don't want to waste our time right now, but very different angle on the energy of a house. Okay. And then uh, in my second story, also something that we've never talked about, automatic handwriting. Uh, yeah, automatic writing. I, I wonder, I've talked about that before numerous times on some Time Suck episodes. I thought... I thought I'd covered. You maybe got wrong. Someone yeah, did it. No, I don't know. <laughs> I think I think I think there was at least one story where someone did it because uh, maybe yeah. It's yeah. A, it was it was a big spiritualist thing when the spiritualist movement like really got got going in the late 19th century uh -huh. and when um, Ouija boards started to be used, which mm -hmm. they called spirit boards at first, and seances were a big hit. Automatic writing was also a big hit, and I want to say we had some story set in Chicago. Oh man, some like house that passed through numerous hands. Anyway, it had something to do with that. But yeah, it's it's very interesting. The whole concept of automatic writing is very interesting. Do you like the way that I very firmly just was like, no, you didn't. <laughs> we're, we're watching Ozarks right now, catching up uh, at the very end. And Marty Bird says the funniest thing about his wife, basically that just like her overconfidence. He He's always nervous and she's always overly confident. And I just looked at Dan. I was like, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah, I, I was saying her overconfidence was going to get them killed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get us killed. Not going to get us killed. I might. Um, okay. So I have, uh, you know, normal two as well. But the first, also very atypical for a scared of death story. And I found it fascinating. Synonym for interesting. I, I, I looked, Is by the way. Is it wild, cool, and interesting? <laughs> I looked. I had the thesaurus open earlier today. And unfortunately, other than fascinating, any of the, there's like intriguing, interesting, fascinating. But then the rest like don't quite fit. Yeah. You know, like, do you remember? Oh, um. Super cool. <laughs> Super interesting. You, you know what? Uh, with, Super wild. I, I could pull out my phone and bring out my dictionary app because it was pretty funny. <laughs> the ones that I, I'm like, nope, there was a whole my bunch is, of them. My mind is in the gutter and you said I could just reach in my pocket and pull out and the way the-, the I said dictionary? Uh-huh. Pull out my uh, dick? Your certain emphasis. What, how does that go? Syllabic. The, the wrong- em em Emphasis. <laughs> emphasis, yeah. You wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> um, interesting- Come on. Come there we on. go. Dictionary. And then thesaurus. Oh, yeah. Here we go. These are the okay, ones. What do we got? Enchanting. Nope. Uh, engrossing. Enthralling. Oh, you could say, oh, I was mm. so engrossed in that story. You can, but, but I, I find that engrossing. Oh, th oh, that's very enthralling. No, no one's going to say it, that. No. At least not us. It's very entrancing. That's not a word I ever throw out. Entrancing. Uh, how very gripping and inviting and riveting and prepossessing. Oh, riveting. 
Riveting. Riveting can work. I don't even know that I've ever heard anyone say that ever in the history of my 38 years. <laughs> like instantly avoid you guys at parties. Yeah, exactly. If you start saying words like that. I know because it does <laughs> get a little. And I'm wearing this sweater. <laughs> it but I button little, it up. It gets a little showy. It and gets I, a little showy. I put on some glasses mm-hmm. and I say, well, this is enthralling. Because that is, that is a, I mean, I love it when people have a good vocabulary. Yeah. And there's people who use an expanded vocabulary naturally. Mm-hmm. But then there's definitely also the person who's like, look at all the words that I know. I know. And it's like, oh, I'm I'm sorry. Are you a 20th century British writer? No. Like, what do you oh. know? You live in Milwaukee and, or, you know, Coeur d'Alene or whatever. And, you know, you, you do accounting. C- calm down. This isn't, um, we're not playing Scrabble. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I do love it. When a child uses a big word, yes. both appropriately and inappropriately, <laughs> yes, or correctly and incorrectly, God, it is so funny to me. It might be my favorite when it's correct. When like a five-year-old throws out like, oh, that was very engrossing. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I'm oh, sorry, what? At four- Good for you. At 14, sometimes Monroe will say words. I'm like, how the hell does she know that mm-hmm. word? Or does she even understand the context of it? But she knows, and I love it. So, okay. So, so refocus on my enthralling, I got us distracted, but this enthralling tale. Um we're going to head to rural Georgia for a tale that features a very unique twist and one that I do not care for at all. It just oh. creeps me out on reincarnation. And I don't want to spoil it by sharing any other details, but it is, I think, a very disturbing story. Okay. Uh, and I hope it's not true. For my second story, another true crime and paranormal combo. So kind of like the Ted Bundy ghost stories I told a few weeks ago. This time, the paranormal encounters thought to revolve around, be related in some way to Lizzie Borden. Ah. So the Massachusetts woman accused of killing her father and stepmother with an axe, a lot of hacks of the axe, uh, back in 1892. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Okay. Ready to begin? I am ready to begin. Just let me oh, dang, settle I in. smash my foot. You're, oh, Ugh, I like I'm your really sore. I've been working out <laughs> a whole socks. lot, and it took a lot of effort to get my leg on the <laughs> table. Whoop, 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 whoop. Nice. Very and cute. If you've been listening to our bonus episodes, you know that I'm... Very tired for a lot of reasons right now. <laughs> uh, this first story is fucking insane. Oh, okay. Wow. Really just going for it. Yeah. So again, I, re- I really hope it's not true. None of the details can be verified. Just a story someone posted years ago in a dark little corner of the web. A story they, of course, claim to be true. Let's all hope they're lying. Almost no setup. We're just going to jump into this twisted account pretty quickly. All right. Twisted sister. Let's go. <laughs> On September 13th, 1931, Sophie Elizabeth Zendona was born in a small rural town in Georgia. Then she was killed in a tragic car accident at the age of only 19 on October 6th, 1950. But then six years later, October 26th, so same day, October 26th, 1950, and then exactly six years later, October 26th, 1956, was she born again in the strangest of ways? Okay. So time now for the tale of Back from the Dead. Sarah would grow up in the same small rural town that Sophie had. She had a normal childhood, happy and content. Nothing of note stood out as unusual, except she always had bizarre dreams leading up to her birthday. Not nightmares, just very odd dreams. She dreamt of places and things that were somewhat familiar because her dreams always took place in the town she lived in. But in these dreams, she was not herself. She was seeing her world through someone else's eyes as if she was that person. Also, the dreams never took place in the present. They were always set in the past. Normally, Sarah didn't remember her dreams, but in the days leading up to her birthdays, these dreams she had would linger. For weeks afterwards, she could remember every detail of them. The sheer lucidity and vividness of those dreams shook her a little. The memory would fade a little over time, but she'd never forget certain moments and details. 
You remember them the same way you'd remember any random day or event in your actual life long after it had happened. After her birthday passed, she'd no longer have these dreams until her next birthday drew near. Sarah dropped out of school at the age of 17 and got a job as a waitress at a local bar. And around that time, her dreams took a frightening turn. Now they began sooner. She started having them with her birthday still months away. And now they were tragic and also felt more real than ever. Approaching the birthday, Sarah finally identified who she became in these dreams. She was looking at the world through the eyes of a girl named Sophie, a girl who was exactly her age in the dreams always. The girl seemed to grow older as she did. The girl, uh, When she was nine, she dreamt of what nine-year-old Sophie was seeing. When she was 17, Sophie, now 17 in the dreams and so on. And life was dark for 17-year-old Sophie. In Sarah's dreams, she was now being physically and emotionally abused by her father and also being abused in these and other ways by another older man. Sarah began waking up with tears running down her face, feeling depressed and empty. These terrible lucid dreams continued for months and by her 18th birthday, Sarah had come to know Sophie intimately. And unfortunately, she was constantly preoccupied with Sophie's feelings of degradation, isolation, loneliness, and despair during her waking hours. Sarah was starting to feel a little unhinged. Sometimes now when she woke up, she felt like she was Sophie. It felt like the line between who she was when she was awake and who she was when she dreamt was getting thinner and thinner. Her world of dreams and the real world she lived in starting to blend together. She'd now become afraid and distrustful of men during her waking hours. A terrible sense of dread followed her everywhere she went. It continued to become harder and harder for her to disconnect her dream life from her real life. By the time she turned 18, Sarah not only felt like she knew Sophie, she felt like she was a, a part of her. Despite these anxious and strange feelings, Sarah's life overall was still running fairly smoothly. The dreams did go away again after her 18th birthday. But then about three months before her 19th birthday, things changed again. The dreams Sarah had been having for her entire life, they now slowly morphed into the exact same recurring dream, night after night, one Sarah desperately wanted to forget each time she woke from it. A pretty girl in a simple white dress hung a painting in the same bar that Sarah worked in now. Sarah watched this girl from above. It was the first of these dreams where she wasn't looking out from Sophie's eyes. The bar was sparsely occupied by patrons. It was a cool, damp, and somewhat miserable October evening. But this was one of the rare occasions where this girl did not feel miserable. She even smiled as she stood back to admire a work of art. She was grateful Pete, the owner of the bar, had let her hang one of her own creations for everyone to see. Pete smiled back at her from behind the bar while Rick, an off-duty bartender, joined her and asked her to dance. She shot a nervous look over to a young, drunk man sitting in the corner as she considered. She really liked Rick, and she felt like celebrating, so she accepted his invitation to dance. Everyone was watching them, especially the man in the corner. But while Sarah could see him, the girl in the dream didn't notice his eyes glaring at her. Time was suspended for a few brief moments. But then the girl's elation was violently shattered as the drunk stormed onto the dance floor, grabbed a hold of her tightly, and dragged her away from Rick. The girl in white struggled and cried, trying to break free from the man's grip. Pete, Rick, and some other patrons came up after them, but the drunk brandished a gun, threatened to shoot anyone who intervened. He then tossed the girl into his truck, climbed in after her. She was crying and pleading, banging on the side of the truck to no avail. The man hit her, then sped off into the night. Rick cried the girl's name out as the truck's tires spit out dust and gravel. It was, of course, Sophie! And then Sarah would wake up. The dream would echo through Sarah's mind all throughout the day. It was the first dream where she saw Sophie from this outside perspective, watching her as if she was watching a few scenes from a terrible movie. 
And then one night when Sarah woke up from this terrible dream, she found herself gasping for air and struggling to sit. When she finally broke free from some sort of paralysis, she pulled herself up on shaky legs and walked to the bathroom. When she looked in the mirror, she wanted to scream. She didn't see her own reflection staring back at her. Instead, she saw the battered, bloody face of the girl in the dream. Sophie staring back at her and she looked like she was dead. Sarah fainted. At least she assumed she fainted. The next thing she knew, she was lying flat on the bathroom floor. Sarah now can seriously consider the idea that she had lost her mind. She got up, made her way to the kitchen, poured herself a strong cup of coffee. She picked up the phone to call her friend Karen. Karen and her husband Dale were the only people Sarah had been regularly confiding in about these strange dreams for years now. Dale was the lead guitarist and vocalist of the house band at the bar uh, she worked at, and Karen was a local hairdresser. Karen was fascinated by the supernatural, the concept of reincarnation, and near-death experiences. She was actually taking courses on these subjects from Dr. Andrew Smith, a professor with a strong interest in parapsychology and the paranormal at a nearby university. Karen spoke to the professor about her friend. Dr. Smith suggested that Sarah might have what he called cryptomnesia, a memory phenomenon in which people mistakenly believe that a current thought or idea is a product of their own creation when in fact they have encountered it previously and then forgotten it. He believed she was living out some long-forgotten trauma in her dreams, and he strongly advised that she come in for some therapy. Sarah was anxious. Her 19th birthday was fast approaching. She was now staying at Karen and Dale's place. They'd become increasingly worried about her in recent weeks. Although Sarah was still working, she was finding it more and more uncomfortable to be in the bar. There was an old drunk who came in every day and sat in a corner and stared at her. She could feel his eyes follow her every move. His glares were suspicious and angry, and she didn't know why. She didn't know this man, but he stared at her like he certainly knew her. Sarah ended up agreeing to undergo some hypnotherapy. Undergoing. And soon, Dr. Smith came to believe something pretty fantastical, that she was reliving somebody else's life. Karen and Dr. Smith did some research into the dates, places, and names that Sarah could remember from her dreams and her sessions. And they were stunned when almost everything she recalled could be found in county records. Sarah remembered seemingly insignificant events that they ended up verifying, which proved to be the most intriguing. She recalled a dog Sophie had brought home, a stray she fell in love with, and when Sophie's dad found out she was keeping a pet against his wishes, he shot the dog and beat Sophie when she cried. The only people who knew about this incident were Sophie and her former neighbor, Grace Collins, now an old woman. Sarah had never spoken with Grace, so how could she have known that story? Grace also took Karen and Dr. Smith to Sophie's grave. The two decided to not, not to bring these details up to Sarah because they worried it would push her into some kind of breakdown to have confirmation that Sophie was a real girl, a girl who had died. Soon, Sarah's 19th birthday was just hours away. Dale and Karen arranged a small celebration to try and cheer Sarah up, take her mind off of the feelings and dreams she was now continually experiencing. They all hoped that, just like in the past, once they made it through her birthday, she'd get a break from all of this. The evening went well, wrapped up around 10.30. Karen, Dale, and Sophie all retired to bed. They hoped that maybe, just maybe, Sophie would somehow get a much-needed night of solid sleep. Of course, this was not to be. Her new recurring nightmare came on with a vengeance. But this time, she didn't wake up after Sophie was pulled into the car by the angry drunk man at the bar and quickly driven away. Now, the horrible dream continued. Sophie and the drunk were speeding down a road, Sophie crying hysterically in the passenger seat. Rain battered against the windshield. The wipers couldn't keep up. Only the right headlight was working. Being out in the country with no street lamps of any uh, kind, no bright lights for miles, they were completely surrounded by so much darkness. They sped down an old back road near Claymont Cemetery. The lone headlight now illuminated glimpses of disfigured trees, Sophie pounding on the door, pleading to be let out. 
She was still pleading when the truck slid off the road in a tight corner and collided with the tree. Sophie was ejected from the truck, flying through a shattering windshield, slamming headfirst into another tree. The back of her head split open, bone fragments now protruded from her cheek, her spinal cord snapped in two as a multitude of bones broke simultaneously and her body nearly instantly battered beyond recognition. Sophie's pure white dress quickly stained to crimson red. Sarah was now jolted awake. She let out a blood-curdling scream, hands clasping the back of her head as she fell off her bed and hit the floor. It felt as if Sarah had suffered some kind of head injury, like the one from the dream. It felt so real she kept screaming and screaming. Karen and Dale called an ambulance. Sarah was transported to a hospital in Atlanta, where after telling everyone about her nightmare, she lost consciousness and also was diagnosed with a cerebral hemorrhage. She was wounded, but how? A battery of tests could not find the source of her head trauma. Twenty days later, Sarah woke out of a coma in the hospital, and she had no memory of what happened to her. The last thing she recalled was hanging a painting at the Longhorn Bar. She had no recollection of who Dale and Karen were, no memory of her sessions with Dr. Smith, or of the strange dreams that had haunted her for years. She had none of the memories she should have had. All memory of Sarah and her life were gone. Oh, shit. But she did have memories. Lots of memories. Sophie's memories. Dr. Smith was stumped. The best he could come up with was it was a strange type of amnesia. It appeared that Sarah had somehow been replaced completely by Sophie's consciousness, the girl from her dreams, the real girl who had died so many years earlier. Sarah, or Sophie, now had an accent and dialect sounding straight from the 1940s. Although Sophie didn't recognize the three people in the room, she felt that she could trust them and agreed to attend therapy sessions with Dr. Smith, even though she didn't totally understand the reason why. Sophie experienced headaches, numbness on the left side of her body, general confusion. She claimed she didn't know anything about Sarah. Karen suggested they visit a psychic used by the local police force. Psychic Madeline Kinney would tell them Sophie's life was so abruptly and tragically ended that she reincarnated sooner than what is usual. The sudden jolt of her soul out of that body and life was like a super psychic shock. The sudden death of this girl it sent shockwaves through the ethereal world that resonate to this day. There are unresolved issues, things that should have been finished before her death. These things will have to be confronted and resolved this time around. That is why she came back. In the coming months, Sophie suffered frequent headaches and arthritis, still didn't recall the crash, which is what everyone thought caused her symptoms. Sophie and Sarah's body went back to waiting tables at the bar. The old drunk still sat in the back corner, watching her every move. And one night, Sophie came to the bar on her night off to watch Dale play. A friend asked her to dance while she did so. And as she was spinning on the dance floor, she locked eyes with the old drunk and then stopped frozen in horror and stared at him. Unbeknownst to her, her nose began to drip blood. The old man's face went white as if he'd seen a ghost. He dropped his beer, black backed out of the bar as fast as he could. Sophie now suddenly remembered the car crash, and she remembered the man. She was overcome with feelings of fear, anger, and hatred, and without thinking, ran after him into the dark night. This was the man who had pulled her into the truck. Sophie didn't know where she was going, but when she stopped against a tree to catch her breath, she ran her hands over a large dent, a dent that she knew was caused by a truck crashing into that tree over 25 years ago. She started running again, kept running all the way to Claymont Cemetery. She ran and ran until she lost her footing. As she braced her hands to stand up, her eyes landed on a name, Sophie Elizabeth Zendona. All she could do was stare at her headstone, and then she broke down sobbing. Karen and Dale later found Sophie still at the cemetery and brought her home, and she wouldn't speak to them. The next day, Sophie played flowers on her own grave, hoping to find some measure of closure. Dr. Smith was astonished. Sarah truly seemed to have disappeared after that final nightmare. 
By the time she came out of her coma, she'd been replaced with Sophie. All her memories, now memories of the deceased girl. Her personality, even physical mannerisms had become Sophie's, it seemed. There was nothing left of Sarah at all. Supposedly, after coming back, Sophie never experienced anything paranormal. No nightmares. Year after year, her birthday would pass on like normal. When Sophie died, it was as if time paused for more than 25 years, as if Sarah was just a placeholder waiting for the right moment for Sophie to return and resume the life that was taken from her. But now I wonder, as I imagine everyone does who hears this strange tale, what happened to Sarah? Did her soul leave her still living body? Did she somehow die while her heart still kept beating, while her lungs kept pumping air in and out of her body, while she could still walk, see, hear, smell, and taste? While her brain still possessed thoughts and memories, just not hers anymore? Or is she locked inside her own mind somewhere, and perhaps, right now, still screaming to get back out? Oh, buddy. Isn't that creepy? That is next level. Also, great idea for a movie. That would wreck me. Like, yeah. absolutely ruin me if it was done well. Yeah, that someone could just take over your body. And it's like so tragic what happened to Sophie, but but almost more tragic for her to show up like that in someone else's consciousness, if that is possible at all, and just take over them. I just, I don't. That's like a ghost just becoming you, but not even becoming you, just a ghost pushing you out of your own body. And then, and then, then your body is just now belongs to someone else. And, and is that like what happens to us? I mean, uh, uh, do we? Okay. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe when I die, I'm just going to possess somebody else. And it's not going to be somebody you know. It's not going to be obvious. Like, I'll just go off to some other whoop. Well, reincarnation, they think, I mean, people who believe in reincarnation, the way I've always heard about it is that you're born again. Right. And start off with a new body. You don't just pop into somebody else's. But, I never heard that twist on it. Well, now you have. And now you can't help but think about it. I know. I know. It's disturbing. Uh, no pictures came. It's very enthralling. <laughs> very entrancing. No pictures came with this story. Oh. But um, this spirit just, I thought, was creepy and reminded me of ah! it. Right? That is uncomfortable. Oof. Like that thing. I imagine that thing just laying down <sighs> over that girl and just, and then what? she pops up someone, someone else. And I don't even feel like Sophie was bad. You know, like, I, I don't feel like her taking over Sarah Mm-hmm. was maybe, malicious in any way. It was just... Maybe it wasn't even conscious. Maybe it was just like she's pulled into this other vessel. Oh, I thought that photo was still up. Um, it is so weird. It's a weird story. It's so wild. <laughs> it's cool. It's so interesting. <laughs> but I, I'm going to be stuck on this because what, what it's going to cause for me long-term mm-hmm. is, okay, you know when you meet somebody and you have a moment of deja vu? <laughs> yes, I was just going to say that, yeah. I'm now I'm going to be like, wait a second. Is this deja vu or is this someone else's consciousness in my head and they've met this person? Or or am I a different person? Have I been possessed? Aye, 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 like, do are you, do you seem like someone I know because I'm no longer me and you oh are, God. in fact, someone I used to know? Oh, no, I got that goatee song in my head. Somebody I used to know. Uh, how, <laughs> how interesting that she, how fascinating that she had that <laughs> <laughs> cerebral hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. That was whoa. I know. I, know. I, I don't know what I thought was going. To, I thought like, oh, maybe she has a migraine. You right. know. I mean, really, when you said, and then they took her to the hospital. In my mind, I went, oh shit! And then they committed her because mm-hmm. she's going to tell this tall tale, and they're going to say like, you've lost your mind, lady. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Ooh, so, so that's buddy. why I said earlier that I hope that story is not true. I wonder. 
you know, okay, so Sarah, Sarah, before she becomes Sophie, Sarah yeah. drops out of high school at 17 and starts working at the bar. I know, I know your version of the story does not go into this, but I have to wonder if that was Sophie pushing her agenda. Yeah, or maybe, or maybe, so, maybe Sophie, too... maybe Sophie had happened to drop out of school also and start working at that bar at the same age. Well, we know for like sure just... that she worked at that bar because she hung her painting. Yeah, she definitely worked there. But, so... but was it like was she just following the footsteps timeline wise too? But yes, absolutely. What I'm suggesting is that it mm-hmm. wasn't of Sarah's own accord that there was some other force propelling her to do yeah. this, whether she was aware of it or not. Yep. You know how you the get universe that... or Sarah's specifically. You know how you get that feeling. Sophie, I mean, yeah. You know how you get that feeling of I must do this, like I must mm-hmm. create this, I I must do this. This this one thing is so important. Mm-hmm. What is motivating that? We mm-hmm. think it's ourselves. We think we're self starters. We think we're self motivated. We think that we're inspired by something we see or hear or watch. But what if? Yeah, it's something else entirely. I've always liked that philosophy of uh, storytelling or just creation, just like story creation. Yeah, where Stephen King talked about that in his book on writing, which is a great just window into how his mind kind of you know works creatively mm-hmm. and how he comes up with stories. And he doesn't think that he does come up with stories in the way a lot of people think. He thinks the stories are already out there, mm-hmm. and that he and that he just basically finds them and is trying not to ruin them as he writes. And I've heard that same thing uh, by uh, The Big Magic. I was um, just going to say that, yeah. Um, Sarah, not Sarah Geller. Mm, um, Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth. Hold on, wait. Don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me. Elizabeth Gilbert. Yeah. Uh, well, is that the girl from, wait, is that is that big uh, Little House on the Prairie? What? Um, oh, you know, you're right. Elizabeth Gilbert. I was thinking of their son. I know things. You do. No, Remember? That was great. How, my confidence? <laughs> no, no, you nailed it. I, 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 this time I did not kill us. Nope, nope, you didn't. No. Uh, yeah, but yeah, in Big Magic, which is a great book for anybody in any creative field, mm-hmm. anywhere, or anybody who is has a straight job and is looking to do something creative with their spare time. It is such a wonderfully written book yes. about digging deep inside of yourself and this concept that no idea is a new idea. They all exist. And the idea kind of makes its way to you. And how mm-hmm. that happens is, I don't know, intrinsic. And then you can either take the idea. Or it moves to someone else. Or it moves on. And to me, that is, and I, th- I believe that she talks about this in the book. It's been so long since I read it. But it's sort of that thing of like when you see some invention on TV or you're at Target and you're like, I thought of that 10 years ago. I thought that would be a great Mm -hmm. idea. Did you act on it? No. The idea moved on. And so it's this this interesting concept that you can either grab the bull by the horns Mm -hmm. and do the thing or someone else will. And Mm -hmm. and we know that to be true, right? Like, you know, short of electricity, which, you know, (laughs) I mean, it's like we're not inventing really anything altogether that new anymore. It's all, Mm -hmm. you know, recreations of things we already have. But, oh, Sarah, Sophie, Sophie, Sarah. <laughs> I'm nervous for our Sophie Evans to listen to this. I know. I'm like, Sophie, are you Sophie? <laughs> that uh, was that was great. Okay, good. That's a weird, interesting, cool story that is going to stick in my brain <laughs> for for days to come. It's and it told, yeah, in a really different kind of way. Good one, Dan Cummins. Thank you. Are you ready to move away from that mind bender and uh, on to another merger of true crime and the paranormal? Mind bender. Nice. I am. Before we head from the mid-20th century to the late 19th century, time for a quick sponsor break. Thanks for listening to our sponsors, Creeps and Peepers. We appreciate it very much. We do. Okay, so you have heard of Lizzie Borden, sounds like, right? I actually 
I'm Lizzie Borden. You're Lizzie Borden now. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, she's possessed me. Oh, boy. Me and my it's dino good, nugget are going to hang out. for me, probably. Probably um, not. One of the most famous American true crime mysteries of the 19th century. I uh, covered it a few years ago on Time Suck. Uh, covering it again now, much more summarized way and in a much different way today. Okay. Obviously, we'll get to the paranormal. Uh, Lizzie Borden took an axe. She gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Many of you listening probably familiar with that schoolyard rhyme about Borden allegedly gruesomely murdering her parents. I have never heard that schoolyard rhyme. It's an older one. I would say I'm so young. <laughs> it's probably more popular in the mid, you know, 19th, 20th century than it is recently. Yeah. Uh, in reality, it took 19 axe blows to kill Abby Borden and 10 or 11 to kill her husband Andrew. Not as many as the rhyme, not that that makes their manner of death any less terrifying. The daughter their daughter Lizzie would not be found guilty of their murders. But she was charged in their deaths and put on trial. And most historians seem to think that she did do it. But uh, that the all-male jury just wasn't comfortable sentencing a young, attractive woman to death back in 1893. If she did do it, why? Retaliation for being secretly abused? To keep some other secret from getting out? To access her inheritance faster? No one really knows. Some speculate that a dark force possessed her and made her do it. Or that some dark force did it apart from her, then set her up to make it look like she did it. And some of these people believe that whatever the dark force was, it's still in her old house today, and that it, along with Lizzie's spirit, still haunt the place. Quite the leap, I know, but what if something that outlandish is true? Let's explore some true crime history and that paranormal possibility now in another ghost and murder mashup. Time now for the tale of the Borden family ghosts. Fall River, Massachusetts, August 4th, 1892. At this time, Fall River was America's biggest producer in the textile manufacturing industry. Hmm. And with all the good jobs that came with that distinction, it was a very much sought-after place to live. Fall River was also about to be engulfed in the scandal of the century. A bloody, horrifying scandal that would lead to a trial essentially everyone in America would be talking about. The trial of Lizzie Borden. On this day, police were called to 232nd Street, the residence of Andrew Borden, a wealthy businessman, to investigate a murder that would turn out to be two murders. The officer who responded was uh, greeted with the most horrific scene he would ever face in his life. 69-year-old Andrew Borden had been bludgeoned to death, struck 10 or 11 times in the face with a hatchet. The exact number, not exactly known because of how completely obliterated his face was when the murder was discovered. Blood was still running, indicating he had died not long before the officer had arrived. Andrew's nose had been completely severed, an eyeball dangling onto his cheek. It appeared as if he'd been attacked while he lay resting on the sitting room sofa. The body of his wife, 64-year-old Abby Borden, was found next. Her remains lay in an upstairs bedroom, face down in a pool of her own blood. Her head had literally been smashed to pieces after taking 19 blows from presumably the same hatchet. Police were shocked. The murders had taken place in broad daylight, and their house sat on a busy street. People may have walked by as the murders were committed, How did no one hear any screams for help or any struggle? And why had anyone done it? Authorities were not able to quickly identify an obvious motive, such as robbery or sexual assault. And no one would report seeing any suspicious person enter the property before the murders or leaving shortly after the bodies were discovered. Or, yeah, before they were discovered. This led them to believe that whoever killed the Bordens knew them, maybe even lived with them. And Andrew's daughter, Lizzie, quickly named the primary suspect. She and the family's maid, Bridget, were the only people known to be present in the house the day out, uh, the day of Andrew and Abby's death. And Bridget was thought to have been quite sick and resting in bed that day, while Lizzie was feeling fine. And with Lizzie, some possible motives were uncovered, like she wanted her father's money, and that she never liked her stepmom. 
Also, her behavior shortly after her coming trial will seem rather suspicious. Andrew Borden was a wealthy businessman, had an upstanding reputation in the community. He was well-liked. Uh, he wasn't showy about his wealth like many other Fall River residents were. But Andrew's 32-year-old daughter, Lizzie, had long wanted to live on the hill and be a lot more showy with their money. She wanted to live in this ritzy neighborhood where almost all of the Fall River elite lived, and they would get in arguments about it often. Lizzie was known for arguing with her father also uh, about her, her stepmom. Lizzie's mother had died when she was only three, and then just two years later, Andrew married Abby Gray, who helped raise Lizzie and her sister Emma, and Lizzie had long hated Abby. She and her sister Emma, nine years her senior, both did. Why they hated her is a little unclear, but the atmosphere in the house between the women, known by many to be very tense. Some details of the investigation into the Borden murders suggested that Lizzie was innocent. Uh, some details. For example, she was at the home when the first police officer arrived at the house and she was clean and dressed properly. He didn't notice a drop of blood on her. These murders were particularly messy. If she killed them, how could she get clean so quickly? There'd be no possible way a person could smash two people's heads to smithereens without being covered at least a little bit in blood. Also important to remember, this was the late 1800s. A person could not just get a quick shower and blow dry their hair uh, within like half an hour. However, under interrogation, Lizzie gave differing answers to officers' questions, which did seem suspicious. Uh, they were disturbed when she didn't shed a single tear. Also, one officer found evidence that Lizzie tried to purchase prussic acid on August 3rd, the day bef uh, before the murders. This, uh, this acid would later be the main ingredient in Zyklon B, one of the gases used by the Nazis to kill victims of the Holocaust in many of their concentration camps. Prussic acid was used primarily back in 1892 as a pesticide. Very strong, very poisonous pesticide. Had Lizzie first considered poisoning her parents before deciding to use an axe instead? Lizzie was arrested on August 11th on suspicion of murder, eventually taken to trial the following year, 1893, and she will be acquitted. But she had been found guilty in the court of public opinion and would remain forever guilty in many of her contemporaries' and neighbors' eyes. Lizzie lived out the rest of her life with a large inheritance, equivalent to over $4 million today. Whoa before dying of pneumonia on June 1st, 1927, when she was 66. After her trial, Lizzie and her sister moved to the hill quickly, the neighborhood that she'd always wanted to live in, tried to become quite the socialites. Uh, this looked very suspicious to many. How she and her sister quickly sold the family home, got a bigger place in a neighborhood Lizzie had been pressuring her parents to move to before they were killed. And I say they only tried to become socialites because many of their new neighbors did not want someone strongly assumed to be an axe murderer to come to any of their parties especially one who seemed so full of joy, so happy now that her father and stepmom were dead. Her behavior was suspicious. Sam Baltrusis, one of Lizzie's direct descendants, does think that Lizzie likely killed her parents, but not without some paranormal help. He researched this murder case and his family history for years, and Sam claims to be a psychic medium, someone highly sensitive to spirits from the other side. And after years and years of his research and some reported psychic communication with Lizzie herself, Sam came to believe, has come to believe, that a demonic curse had been placed on the Borden bloodline and that Lizzie herself was not responsible for the murders. Sam insists that if Lizzie did physically carry out the deed, it may have been under some type of demonic possession. Sam believes that Lizzie experienced a paranormally induced disassociative episode and was not, a, not in control of her body at the time of the killings. Some type of possession could explain how the strength and brutality needed for these killings could have come from a woman described in sources as being small and petite. Sam had conducted several different paranormal investigations to try and clear Lizzie's name and to try and remove this supposed Borden family curse. 
Sam says he's found evidence supporting the possibility of a curse during his research that revealed a lot of pain, misery, and death in Lizzie's bloodline. Like the case of Sarah Maria Cornwell, Sarah was Lizzie Borden's fifth cousin. Lizzie was distantly but directly descended from her by blood. Sarah was a young mill worker from Fall River, pregnant with her first child when her dead body was found hanging from a tree in nearby Tiverton, Rhode Island in December of 1832. She had been raped and brutally murdered. A Methodist minister by the name of Ephraim uh, K. Avery would be brought to trial for her murder and then acquitted just like Lizzie, also just like Lizzie, guilty in the court of public opinion. Then, 16 years later, 1848, another of Lizzie's relatives, her great-aunt Eliza Borden, who once lived next door to the Borden house, suffered a pretty severe mental breakdown. And then she tragically and brutally murdered her own two children by throwing them down a well. Then she slit her own throat and bled out and died. Jeez. So there have been numerous other violent deaths in the Borden family tree. Sam thinks they may all point to some type of curse, and that rather than a cold-blooded murderer, Lizzie was another victim of it. Sam claims to have channeled her great-aunt Eliza several times over the years, and he says she's always crying and begging someone to help her children. Sam has also looked into someone else staying at the house the night before Andrew and Abby were murdered, Lizzie's maternal uncle, John Morse. John had been reluctantly ruled out as a suspect very quickly in the initial investigation after providing an extremely detailed alibi, maybe too detailed, as if it had been planned. Sam thinks John may have been the real killer, also a man uh, very familiar with paranormal power. There were rumors at the times that John was involved in black magic and dabbled in the occult. According to these rumors, he came from a long line of witches dating back to the 1600s. Could one of them have placed the curse, a curse John was perhaps aware of? Did he maybe help carry out some requirement of this curse? John was also a butcher, carried around tools similar to the murder weapon. Lizzie had said she'd heard John and her father get into a heated argument the morning her parents were murdered. Could John have summoned a demon to kill his brother-in-law? Or was he possessed by something and that drove him to commit the murders? These are just some of the very strange possibilities Sam has entertained. Over the last decade or so, Sam has teamed up several times with paranormal investigators Dave Schrader, Luann Yali, and Chris Fleming, a psychic medium, to investigate the theories. This paranormal team first conducted a full investigation of the Lizzie Borden house, now a bed and breakfast in Fall River, and they quickly determined it was a magnet for paranormal activity with several spirits residing there. Numerous guests of the bed and breakfast have backed up their claims. A variety of paranormal phenomena have been reported by those who have stayed or worked there for years. The team claims to have experienced loads of paranormal activity revolving around the Borden family when they've researched and investigated. When team member Chris Fleming went uh, first to the Borden house with Lizzie's parents, or where they were killed, excuse me, in August of 2010, he stood in the upstairs hallway and he asked, who did it? And he swears he heard a woman's disembodied voice disembodied voice respond, it wasn't me. Guests have also reported hearing disembodied voices, uh, also sounds of both crying and footsteps. Team member Luann claimed that when she was investigating, she encountered numerous violent spirits in the house. She and Sam said that as soon as their investigation team entered the house, they were jolted into uneasiness when the smell of rotting flesh assaulted their senses, adding to an atmosphere that was already thick with feelings of hopelessness and despair. Following Lizzie's parents' murders, their two bodies were left out for days on the dining room table. Was the smell of their decaying flesh still echoing into the present almost 130 years later? Had the memory of that tragic double double homicide perhaps permanently imprinted itself into the walls and floors of the building, unwilling to ever let anyone forget the events of that fateful morning? Upon entering the hallway to sit down in the living room, the team also reported witnessing the drawers of a large mahogany dresser slam open and shut on their own. 
And then when Luann did her first walk through the house, accompanied by her EVP recorder, she said she heard a deep growl. A little shaken, she continued up the stairs, making her way to the bedrooms. She started with Bridget's bedroom, the room in which the maid was sleeping while the Bordens were being bludgeoned to death, and she claimed she heard someone answer, I'm here, when asked if they wanted to tell her anything. She and other investigators also claimed they heard rustling sounds when asked if Lizzie was present. In Abby's bedroom, they said they heard a voice say, I'm a good daughter. And then when they played a recording of that back, they now also heard, my daughter was raped. Sam wondered if that was a reference to allegations that Lizzie's father, Andrew, had sexually abused her. Later, Luann said she heard a deep male voice saying, I'm Anvilo, and then laughing maniacally. Maybe most disturbing, in the living room, a light sensor camera detected a human-shaped form in the sitting room where Andrew was murdered. When Dave now asked Lizzie if she was near as well, the team heard a banging noise coming from the radiator. On day two of this investigation, Sam claimed to feel Eliza Borden trying to speak through him. Appearing in distress and out of control of his own body, he said, my children, and keep them away from him. The investigation team also explored the former location of John Morse's house. Morse's house had long since been demolished. The land was now just forest. As evening descended, the investigators walked steadily through that forest. They had taken with them a camera, and Luann had an EVP recorder. As the branches crunched underneath their feet, the air began to feel thick and oppressive, and they decided to stop for a moment. Chris suddenly felt certain something was some kind of entity was circling them, watching them. Sure enough, when they played back footage from their cameras later, they claimed to have seen two large glowing eyes out amongst the trees. They also heard footsteps rustling around them. On the EVP recorder, after Sam called out to talk to John Morse, a distinct voice came through the recorder in a deep growl, saying, Satan loves you. Finally, the team returned to the Borden house to perform a seance. Before they began, Dave told the team about how he spoke to a friend regarding the name Anvilo. She informed him that the Algonquin word Ankylo means he died. And she said her friend believed that the voice that said, I'm Anvilo, was some sort of demon. During the seance, Dave felt as if Lizzie were trying to speak through him. Uh, his arm began to shake uncontrollably. He appeared distressed and frightened. Chris placed a pen in his hand, speaking of automatic writing, mm -hmm. and Dave first wrote, No more. And then, yes. Then Luann's hand began to shake. She now proceeded to write down a series of sixes in reverse. And then she said, speaking in a strange voice, it wants us to die. Following the seance, the team then used the spirit box to try and get these spirits to speak to them. And they claimed they all heard it say, demon, in the house. And then Eliza spoke through Chris once more. She said, so much pain, so much pain. When asked if something influenced her to kill her children, she said, monster. A monster conjured up as some part of a curse. Finally, at the end of the seance, the group invited the spirits of the house to accept forgiveness and move on to the other side. They left feeling freed from the spirits attached to them, but did any spirits actually leave the house? Were they able to move on from the sins of their past and finally have peace? Only time will tell. I guess if you want to investigate yourself, you can go stay the night there. No way, ho, they. <laughs> Nope, 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 nope. I, f I would be too nervous, not so much of something happening, but of bringing something back with me. Mm. It just feels, I don't know, Ichiwawa. Yeah, dark uh, dark crimes certainly happened there. Yeah. Here's a pic of Lizzie Borden, mm -hmm. the most well-known one. Uh-huh. I, I do have to say I do like her dress. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, it is cool. Uh, just that whole look from, gosh, you know, uh, I don't know exactly when that picture was taken, but probably 1890s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this next pick is her, her dad, Andrew Borden. Uh, this and he was for sure abusing her. Yeah? No, no, that's just a rumor. That is just mm. a rumor. Um, it is not confirmed, uh, you know, when he was alive. Got it. Yeah. JK. 
Uh, stepmom Abby Borden. Yay, stepmoms. <laughs> there's, uh, there's also pictures of them, you know, if you're morbidly curious, uh, from the crime scene. No, thanks. Accused murderer John Morse, Lizzie's uncle. Here's a picture of him. Well, he looks dangerous. He has evil eyes. I know, he does. So that's, you know, concerning. However, he does look kind of... He looks like me. Uh, and that's actually a joke picture. That is not uh, John Morse. That is Carl Pans Ram, a horrific American serial killer oh, who no. was hanged in 1930. <laughs> uh, he was very I mean, disturbed. It, it's not the first time someone said that you look like a serial killer. That's true. That's true. But you're a very sexy serial killer. Oh, well, that's nice. Yeah. Okay. At least, uh, at least I got that. Yeah. Uh, this next one, the real pick of uh, Lizzie's uncle, John Morse. Well, he looks like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> He does. I feel like a lot of people look like Abraham Lincoln back then. I know. It's just like the long face, <laughs> thin nose, beard. Yeah. You throw a hat on him and you told me he was good old Abe. I'd be like, okay. I know. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's funny. Yep. Totally. And then the last one, this is just the uh, the old Lizzie Borden house recent pick. I'm pretty cool looking home. Does I mean, it's kind still of linger there? boring. Mm-hmm. It just yeah. feels like, honestly, that looks like a type of house. That looks like a Chad. If you live in Coeur d'Alene, that looks like a Chad Oakland new construction house over on 15th. <laughs> Oh, funny how, the, yeah, certain right, designs just, like, just oh, circulate. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I like that picture. Very yeah. Very cool with the moon in the background. Yeah, it's just a cool But picture. definitely not staying there, no matter <laughs> how cool it looks. Thank you for keeping me safe, Dino. <laughs> Dino Nugget, voodoo doll thing. I mean, yeah, if you want to snuggle with one of these guys instead of Trela Layla, I, I'll share with you. Okay, thank you. They're really soft. They look very soft. They're so cute. Uh, okay, well... First of all, I have to acknowledge this. You have the most soothing voice. So sometimes when we're in here, I yawn. And if you're watching, you see me yawn. It's not even that I'm tired because I have the most amount of energy. It's just like, it's warm and cozy in here. And then you start talking. I'm like, oh, this is a great story. It is a funny thing that uh, maybe some people would be insulted by. I like it, but I feel like a weird amount of people have told me that they listen to... um, to time suck or scared to death, but oftentimes time suck, which is the solo me talking uh-huh. uh, to help them fall asleep at night. It's because you have a good, well, you have a good voice and it's good rhythm. It's not mm. like big ups and downs. It's just very much like you, very steady mm. and just consistent and reliable. And it's, yeah. Well, like there are some people that, I, like, I could listen to Gabriel Byrne read a oh, I like phone his voice. book. It's yeah. like, oh my God. But it would be the same thing. I could just fall asleep listening to him talk. It's not that he's mm. boring, mm-hmm. it's just that he is soothing. That's nice. Yeah. I like, yeah, I do like his voice. And I oh, hadn't thought of that too. before. Yeah. He has a great voice. He has a great, great voice. There's a few people with voices like that. Mm-hmm. We're just like, okay, talk to me. Talk to me, I mean, Samuel Jackson. Morgan Freeman. Yeah, I like Samuel Jackson voices better. I'm thinking of going to sleep. Mm. I'm, I'm thinking of Samuel Jackson, I feel like has more range and intensity. I guess it depends on how he's doing it. No, I just feel like he, I feel like he would be like my grandpa talking to me. Huh. Right. Anyways, anyways. Um, okay, on the note of the death, uh, the deaths, mm-hmm. bludgeoning someone to death is very personal. That is mm-hmm. like, you have to get so up close with them in order to yeah. commit that crime. So whether or not it was Lizzie, I don't know. I'm not here to debate that. But it definitely was someone that knew them that had some sort of personal yeah. vendetta against them. Almost everyone thinks it was either Lizzie or the or the uncle, which mm-hmm. would have been her mom's brother, uh, John. So mm-hmm, w- mm-hmm. one of them, I mean. Oh, the the birth mom. Yeah. No, 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 no. The uh, Step stepmom, stepmom's oh, brother. okay. Hmm, that's that's interesting. I think now now I'm second guessing myself. I assumed when I was uh, looking into it. I mean, I didn't research all of those details as thoroughly as I would for like time suck. Yeah, 
I think it was the stepmom's brother, though. Well, that's interesting. It would make more sense to me if it was the bio mom's uh, brother, because mm. then it was like, I mean, you moved on and married again because you needed your family name to go on. Or, you know, I mean, people I, were so rarely just single for the rest of their lives at that time. So when when Lizzie's birth mom died, it makes sense that he that her dad remarried. Mm -hmm. But if you are bio mom's family, you might be angry. So that's why it would make sense to me. Yeah, maybe. Okay, okay. This is a very weird um, line that I drew between these two stories. But when you were talking about how Lizzie and her sister Emma wanted to move up to the hill, and it was very suspicious that after the death, they were like very Mm -hmm. flashy. I wrote down the Hernandez brothers. It immediately made me think (laughs) of like those dumb shit. There's a connection there, yes. Killed their parents and then were like- Lyle and Eric Menendez. uh, Menendez, not Hernandez. I was thinking of Aaron Hernandez. I knew who you meant. Uh, Menendez, yeah. yeah. The Menendez brothers, absolutely, where it's- uh, there was a similar thing where it was like rich kids upset with their parents for not like giving them money for the things they wanted. Yeah. It, it did seem like through the trial, I will say that Lizzie Borden, you know, came across very much as a, as a petulant, spoiled, just a brat. Ah, yeah. You know, who just, um, her, her whole life was taken care of. It was so weird at that I mean, time. $4 million. Mm-hmm. In, in that time it was, yes, it's a lot of money now, but then it was like so much money. Yeah, well, no, equivalent to four million today. So I don't know what the, the figure wouldn't have been four million then. No, uh, no I know what I'm saying. Like, um, oh, I see. Money was so much harder to make, and it was just like such a yeah. different time where opulence was. I there was such a giant. Not that there's not a wealth gap now, mm-hmm. but to me, it feels like the wealth gap was even bigger. Like, if you either had a lot of money or you just didn't, there was no real in between. So for her yeah. to have that kind. Of, I, don't, I don't know that I I'm think, articulating this I think, well. it, I think it, it, well, it, it went further too because let's, yeah. let's say you had the equivalent of $4 million in 1892, 1893, whatever. Oh you, you didn't have to worry about health insurance. You didn't have to, like, right, there was a right. lot of different kind of costs. You didn't have the same property taxes and things. Mm-hmm. So it would actually, it would last you your whole life. Like you would like be able to just really like, uh, not that it wouldn't last you your whole life now, but it, it would. You'd have to be smarter about it now. Yeah, you'd have to be smarter about it now. You would be able to kind of live lavishly for a long time yes, that's, then. Thank you for very uh, eloquently articulating what I was trying to yeah, express. Yeah, I knew what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. But, the, but you're right. It was a, yeah, very similar vibe uh, to the whole Lyle and Eric Menendez thing where, you know, that's why people speculate that they killed their parents, um, which they, they did they kill did. their parents. But like, as far as reasoning why, mm-hmm. that they just, uh, even though they were getting all that money and being taken care of, they, they still wanted more. Oh, and I know what I was uh, going to say earlier. It was, it's so weird now, but it was so normal then for women um, when, if you didn't get married, mm-hmm. it was very common, especially if your family had means, mm-hmm. they would just take care of you for the uh, rest of your life. Do we know why Lizzie Borden never married? Mm, she, she wasn't unattractive. No, there was, it's been so long now since I did the research. I did look into that. She was courted by people and I can't remember. It's all speculation as to why she Maybe didn't. she was just a brat. Yeah, and I can't remember if she married later in life, but I don't think she did. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think she did. I mean, she might have been just uh, kind of nuts. Mm, yeah, maybe. and there's and there's a thing back then too where uh, you know uh, a lot of people it was so taboo to be homosexual. She it could have been as simple as she just didn't like dudes. Could be, and, and then and then wasn't allowed at that time to pursue a romantic relationship uh, with a woman without. Um, yeah, a lot of kickback. Angering the community and possibly going to jail or being committed <sighs> to an asylum. Fucking nightmare. Mm-hmm. So yeah, crazy times. Crazy, crazy times. But I just I just find that weird in stories. Like, what a weird thing where like there was so much pressure to marry off daughters specifically. Tell me, we know. 
There's there is still a weird amount of pressure. But back then it was because they were they weren't allowed to have a lot of jobs or was it normal for them at all? It was just like seen as like uh um, especially if you had status, mm-hmm. it was an embarrassment to your family if you were working, like, like, oh, your dad must not have enough money to take care of you. Yeah. So it was so patriarchal. And it was this thing of like, you're just um, this weird 30-year-old, 25-year-old, 35-year-old child still in many mm-hmm. ways living with daddy and stuff. What a terrible thing. What a terrible thing for both parties. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. I could and, really, and you say it's still pressure now. Well, yeah. yeah, it's like I could really go off the deep end about that and I'm not going to in any big dramatic way. But it is still in a lot of circles of people, socioeconomics, just, I don't know, a variety of people think like, well, what is wrong with you? Mm, Why is she not married? You know, but like, you know, George Clooney, just as a example of someone that we know that didn't get married till very late in life, is like, oh, living that bachelor life, good for him. Leonardo DiCaprio, good for him. There's no like, oh, you know. Yeah, it doesn't get passed across the same way. No, it's like, you know, if you are... Uh, a woman of a certain age, no matter how beautiful or successful, it's like, oh, mm-hmm. she must be crazy. Uh, it's like, fuck you. Okay. I mean, maybe I am, but maybe I'm not. Like, wh- like why is that mm-hmm. the, the thing that we jump to? You know? So yeah. anyways. Okay. Do you want a, a dino nugget this I'm, week? I'm ready. Oh. Okay. I, I just <laughs> thought you were going to, you know. Take yeah. my dino nugget. Okay, so uh, two stories, okay. as always. And my first story, I know that we give a generalized uh, trigger warning at the beginning yeah. of all episodes now, but I do just want to say that this story has a very heavy, prevalent theme of suicide. So mm. I just want to put that out there. And if that is something that you need to just skip over, you can go ahead and skip to the next story. Okay. Okay. So, so often when we are doing this show, we talk about like, oh, someone will be setting up their story. Like, oh, I have the story to tell you. The energy of the place was so off. The energy was so off. And we think like, okay, well then like, why didn't you just get the fuck out right away? Why did you hang out? Mm -hmm. You know, like what, what was that about? But I, I, in this story, I really started to think about like, could demonic oppression just be strictly mental like do do you think that there are instances that like depression unbeknownst to us is some sort of demonic oppression i mean that's what people say i mean that's that's one of the theories uh i, I suppose yeah in certain situations it could be yeah yeah or it's some like, kind of paranormal oppression yeah right because it's like i mean i for me personally i deal with a lot of mental health issues and depression is one of them but i had it never thought like oh it could be related to something other than my own chemical imbalances Mm -hmm. or, you know, like, yeah, when I'm in certain situations or places, I think like, oh, this doesn't feel good, but I don't ever make that leap to something bigger than that. Right. Yeah. So this story, I just, I don't know. I, I, the storyteller doesn't even necessarily allude to that. They think it was demonic oppression. Uh, They don't say that exclusively, but it's definitely, I should rephrase that. It's not specifically said, but it's definitely alluded to. Um, And, and, you know, again, I think you could say that of any story, but it's such a fascinating to me angle of like, what went on in this house? And there is no big like (gasps) moment. It's just very bizarre. Okay. Okay. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Good day. I love that beginning. I hope this email finds the entire crew doing well, hopefully thinking about plans to go out and enjoy friends and family as warmer weather begins. Not in Idaho. It is still (laughs) a whole 50 degrees. I wanted to share a tale with you about my friend Carl. I've known Carl for about 10 years, and he's become very entrenched in my life. 
We have similar fandoms like Marvel movies and sports. We enjoy the outdoors. And Carl himself is just a super friendly, jovial person. Someone who walks into the room and fills people around him with a spirit of good feelings. His kind nature is always a joy to be around. And that doesn't mean that he's not uh, into the occasional dirt and grit. There's sort of That's sort of wrapped up in him as well. He's absolutely not afraid of occasionally getting his hands dirty for the sake of a job well done. About two years ago, Carl announced that he was moving out to Wyoming. In many ways, it was quite a shock. After about a year and a half, he had just married, um, about a year and a half before, he had married someone who was also an East Coast native. She had been offered the job of a lifetime, but it would require relocating. She also joined into our clique of friends rather smoothly and always felt like she was a part of our group. When they moved, we stayed in touch with him and her and our group of friends here on the East Coast via Facebook and Snapchat. However, two months after they moved, it was the start of the pandemic. Carl had already been struggling with his job, and as they were establishing themselves in a new home in Wyoming, they had also been trying to start a family. Unfortunately, after a number of medical issues, they were unable to have a successful pregnancy. This began to really heavily weigh on them as a couple. Last summer, the two decided to do an informal separation. Neither really wanted a divorce, but there was a sense of trying to recapture themselves. Fortunately, Carl was able to find work. The position also afforded him the ability to primarily work remotely. But to have so much change in a relative short amount of time, all of our friends knew that something was up with him. So I made the arrangements and flew out west for a week with Carl. When I first arrived, it was like we had just seen each other a couple days before. There was laughter and joy, and we immediately both got more excited for the plans we had talked about getting into that week. When we got to his home, the house he was renting felt off. Not dark, per se, but like it did not fit him. For someone so friendly and kind, this place seemed just disjointed. It's hard to put it into words, but something wasn't sitting right with me. However, it did not stop our excitement, and though we had stayed in contact over social media, we began to share the stories of our lives and all that had happened since he moved in great detail. And soon enough, any off feelings about his current living situation melted away. However, I would be remiss if I did not say I felt like in the back of my head there was something else going on that I just couldn't put my finger on. That first day, other than talking, we enjoyed a lot of local food and continued to plan the details of our trip. A lot of outdoor recreation was planned, camping and hiking mostly. When we went into the spare bedroom of his house that he had used for storage to look for some gear, I noticed a glass-fronted cabinet that had several rifles in it. In general, this may not seem necessarily out of place, especially for the area. I had known him. Uh, I had never known Carl to own guns previously. I had been to his house before he moved, and he never had a gun before. Carl, being pretty intuitive, picked up what I was glancing at in the cabinet. He offhandedly mentioned since moving he had gotten into hunting, and opening the door to the cabinet showed me a couple of handguns on the bottom shelf. He mentioned that he had been to a nearby friend's property where they had constructed a shooting range. I feel like I'm focusing more on the conversation than what actually took place in comparison to the rest of the entirety of our time together. It was just a few seconds. We spent, a few, we spent more time talking about what we did and did not need for our trip. I should also mention that at this point, we had each had a couple glasses of whiskey, and a couple more after that as well. After continuing to talk for a few more hours, we called it a night. That evening, my sleep was very unsteady. I was physically comfortable, but my brain kept running. 
It was like it was trying to give me signals that I couldn't interpret. I did not spend the night thinking about any one thing. It was just a night filled with haphazard sleep. When we got up in the morning, our plan for the day was to go fishing. The camping and hiking we would get to later. We both realized we just wanted to kick back and relax a bit. Keep in mind, this was my first ever trip to Wyoming. When we got to the lake, it felt oddly familiar. There was a small structure near the lake, and though there were not any boats for rent, it did make me think of a structure where someone would sit and rent out boats. The only thing to know was that we were really by ourselves. I thought this was odd, as the weather was relatively nice. We continued to catch up, told wild stories, didn't really catch anything but short, but shared stories of catches that got away, and then we headed back to his place. When we got back to Carl's, seeing the front of his house again left me in a place of feeling uncomfortable again. Something just wasn't sitting right with me. As we walked in, Carl grabbed the whiskey and poured two glasses. I tried to ask him some questions about the house, like how he came to find it. He said a friend at work had showed it to him. Carl was jovial, talking about the house. But that feeling of something not setting right with me was screaming. When we walked back into the house, we had left a couple of bags near the door. Carl grabbed the bags and walked into the spare room. I remember looking at the door to the room, and it was suddenly like looking into a black hole. You couldn't really quite see into it from where I was at, but but it was like you were lost looking into it. I thought I heard a sound, the sound of the cabinet door creaking open in the room. I ran into the room and found Carl with a gun under his head. This was not my jovial friend anymore. Carl's face was flooded with tears, a look more of apology on his face than anything else. I tried to reach out to him. Everything suddenly became very sharp, bright, and loud. It was like bright lights all of a sudden and a mix-up of images. And then I woke up. It was early morning of the first night I'd been at his house, that night of very uncomfortable sleep after a long travel day catching up with Carl and the alcohol must have eventually caught up with me and I had actually been asleep that whole time. The lake and everything after had been such a vivid dream It took me a moment to realize if it had actually happened at all. I was quite a bit shaken, but however, at some point, I managed to fall back asleep again. About an hour later, I heard Carl moving out and about. We began to get ready for our first day and to go fishing. As we got in his car to drive out, he asked me what was on my mind. I simply told him I hadn't slept well. Once we got to the lake, I was in absolute shock. For a place I'd never been to before or seen pictures of, this lake matched identically to the one from my Mm -hmm. dream, all the way down to the small building near the lake where there should have been boats to rent. As we got out of the car, I let Carl know I had seen this place before, hoping he would have said something like he had sent me a picture or posted something about it on Facebook that I had simply forgotten about. The spot we finally got to on the side of the lake was different than the dream, thankfully. After being there for a bit, I really got into more questions about how Carl was really doing. We were at the lakeside, where we were at at the lakeside was more secluded and no risk of anyone catching a drift of our conversation. I drove a little harder as we talked. I ended up telling him about my dream and that I was worried about him. We sat for a bit in the two folding chairs that we had brought. As we talked, he admitted to having a few darker moments and that things had changed for him very fast. More specifically, he talked about a night that he came home and felt very much like he was stuck and how he had almost walked uh, and how he had walked mindlessly into the spare room and put the gun under his head not Jesus. once but twice. However, thoughts of his wife and his family and friends back east and just his own inner monologue kept telling him to make a different decision and it stopped him both times. For the rest of our trip, things changed a little bit from what we had initially planned. 
All we did was hang out. We did some hiking, but no camping and just a lot of talking. At one point, about midway through the week, his wife randomly reached out to him and said she had seen I was in town and asked if we could all get together. For the back half of the week, the three of us spent a lot of time together. And I remember my last night driving up to the house that there was this weird sense of thing of things not being quite right before now suddenly seemed okay. It made me feel better knowing as I was leaving the next day. Just a couple weeks later, Carl called me to say he and his wife were moving back in together. How fortunate it was that he had only had a short-term lease on that weird house and they were going to move out. It's now a year later and things have taken quite the positive spin. Carl's wife found a new job back east and they're moving back this way this week. And in spite of all the setbacks and challenges they faced, his wife is now pregnant. In advance of his move, he said he didn't want to bring the guns back with him and had gotten rid of all of them. I didn't ask any questions about where they went. A voice inside of me was very happy the guns were gone and my friend was safe and his wife was too and they were coming home together and and that they would be welcoming in addition to their family. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. Appreciate what you love and do many thanks. And that's anonymous, right? The, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, oh. I wasn't. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, that's quite the uh, interesting story about Carl. It just... Uh, what I find interesting about that story is that, you know, we have had plenty of poltergeist type stories, stories of demonic infestation, you know, and things where somebody living in a house starts getting depressed, their mood changes, mm-hmm. but previously always accompanied by, um, you know, paranormal, more traditional paranormal activity of like right. doors opening and closing, footsteps, shadowy forms lurking about. And this story only has the darker mood mm-hmm. and none of the rest. And that would be a sneakier way for something to try to kill you yeah. if, if that's what it was doing. Yeah. I, th- I just thought like, you know, we talk about mental health so much on this show just mm-hmm. in general because of the own stuff, my own stuff and your stuff. And I just thought like, God, like, of course, there can always be a, some sort of scientific expl- explanation to why your body does what it does yeah. and why your brain chemistry is the way it is. But what in those? What happens to those instances where there is no explanation? Yeah, and what it's if like, something else? What is... if there is something else behind it? And I mean, mm-hmm. how lucky for Carl that his friend came to visit him, and like maybe that was enough to just pull him out of it. And yeah. and the friend saying like, "Hey, this place doesn't feel right to me." Not like, mm. "Hey, man, are you all right? You seem not okay." You know, I know you've been right. going through a hard time. It was like the house specifically was very strange yeah. to him, and then. The dream really... Yeah, that's strange. Yeah, so it's like, was whatever... Was there something in this house? And was it also trying to possess the friend and lead him like down a path of like, this is how it has to play out? Or was there two things in the house? And one is tr- working on his friend and some other thing is like trying to get him a message yeah. of get your friend out of here. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah I just thought it, w- it was so different and then... So many of the fan stories, usually our fan stories are not so abstract. And so I just liked it for no, some I, variety. I, that was great. Yeah, I thought it was excellent. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Just, yeah, just another interesting, fascinating, intriguing thing to think about. It was very enthralling. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, one last story. Okay. So you kind of touched a little bit on automatic handwriting in your story, which yeah. was completely random and mm-hmm. not planned. So then you are aware of what automatic handwriting is. Yeah, and I think it's t- typically called automatic writing, isn't automatic it? Automatic writing, yes. Yeah. Um, but it is often done by hand. I mean, that is pretty funny to think about, like, a, <laughs> on a typewriter. Automatic foot writing. I mean, I guess, or foot writing. Uh, yes, I've, I've, I've come across it when we've talked about spiritualism on uh, Time Suck and looking into some people who, um, there's definitely some charlatans who claim to do that, uh-huh. who have gotten caught 
and and, and been exposed as it being a hoax. Whoopsies. Who are just um, it's like a parlor trick, you know. But 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 you could say that about a lot of things. You could That's say that true. about any kind of paranormal thing. There are people who get caught doing it, faking it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that other people who make uh, similar claims. But there's not some uh, authenticity to what they're doing. Sure, sure. Yes, but I'm familiar with it. Okay, well, for anybody who's not, just very quickly, as you mentioned, it's part of spiritualism. Uh, It's writing produced involuntarily when the subject's attention is ostensibly directed elsewhere. So the the phenomena could occur when the subject is in an alert waking state or in hypnosis, Mm -hmm. and usually during some sort of seance, and it's generally practiced within the occult. Yeah, some people say it's when a spirit takes over your body and uses you to write down its own message. Yes, yeah, a specific type of channeling. Exactly. You know, actually, I think who may have done it, and I might be wrong, Winchester. Was it Sarah Winchester, the Winchester house? She would go up to a certain room in that house. That sounds really familiar. And, and, and she would do something, and I, I just can't remember if the thing she would do all the time was writing or not, or if it was like some kind of mediumship where she's vocally communicating with something. Yeah. But I thought it might have been writing, but yeah. But it's yeah. part of that seance world mm-hmm. and that where you're you're a, a vessel for some entity to come into you and mm-hmm. use you to communicate. Yeah, and the thing that like I really took away from the quick amount of research I did was that if you aren't in a good headspace yourself, there mm-hmm. is the possibility that w- why it becomes scary is that if you're not right, yeah. if you haven't set yourself up for success, so to speak, y- you are more likely to bring in something negative. Like you're hmm. what you, att- you are what you attract kind of thing, yeah. right? So it's like, you know, if you're in a bad space and you're going to sit down and try and do this automatic writing, you would be more likely to get something demonic as opposed to being in a good headspace, mm. light and love, where you might bring in something also bright and yeah. and peaceful. Yeah, it is interesting, kind of like the Ouija board stuff we've talked about. Your um it, it, it's I guess in a sense scarier, uh more risky than Ouija board use, where that you're communicating with something mm-hmm. with automatic writing, you're inviting something to inhabit you. Right. You're you're inviting something in. Which means I'll possibly never do this. <laughs> yeah. But but I had never heard of it. So I thought that this was a really fun yeah. story just to share and kind of uh widen the range of possibilities. And I don't think we've gotten a fan story about automatic writing. So this is great. No, this is fun. Good morning, dynamic duo of <laughs> creepy information. I'm an old broad, but I really enjoy your stories. Uh, I plug you in as I do my daily walk. I don't think you've ever addressed automatic handwriting, so I want to share my tale. When I was a sweet young thing, a friend of a friend, a woman named Rose, who I'd never met, came to my friend's house so we could do the automatic handwriting. All three of us put our hands on our pencils with our hands, our other hands interlocked. If I recall correctly, Rose said a little prayer, and then we went about asking if anyone was there with us. The pencil never moved, but after her saying it several times, it eventually did move. It scared us, needless to say. She asked what the spirit's name was, and it wrote out Job. Neither of us knew a Job, and Rose asked, Job, who do you know here? And the pencil wrote out my name. The pencil continued to move and write to me. It told me to tell my mother, I'm with dad in the ocean. As I mentioned, Rose didn't know me and didn't know anything about my history. A friend of mine had died and his name was Paul. Paul's dad was in the Air Force back in the late 60s and C-130s were going down into the Atlantic. Paul's dad's body was never recovered when he died. Since Job was talking directly to me, this was the only possibility I could come up with to connect me to it. I asked Rose why he would use the name Job and she simply said that Paul had only been his earth name. 
It was all so overwhelming. I did contact Paul's mother and brought all the papers that we had scribbled out to reassure her that Paul was all right. That was the last time I did automatic writing. On a lighter note, I told my mother about this experience and she told her sisters. This was a group of all Italian Mm. ladies, mind you. Mm. They decided to try it. It was their first and last time. When they reached out to the spirit world and the writing began, nothing but curse words were written. (laughs) Scared the dickens out of them and they threw away the pencil and paper and I'm sure they also confessed it to a priest. I know this is kind of off the wall, but I thought you might find it interesting. Thanks again for brightening my day in such an eerie way. God bless you both. Purple Peep. Purple Peep. Oh, that was that was I love, yeah, I love the ending. I just love this uh, four, you know, older Italian women. Uh, <laughs> I think she said four, um, or a group of them anyway. Yeah, doing this, and then nothing comes out but curse words. <laughs> it was so funny, and that's, <laughs> and that just makes me think. Like, I mean, it's funny. It's like. Uh, were they channeling something or are they just like, they don't normally curse. And this is almost like an unconscious way to get these out there. And then they're kind of shocked by what their own mind is like putting on. I don't know. That's interesting to me. I, it cracked me up. Cause I thought like, of course they went to confession about it. Like, yeah. ah, I, first of all, I didn't, I wasn't cursing. It wasn't me. Second of all, we, we dabbled in the occult. I'm so sorry. I would I would love it if just one of one of the older ladies just like it's her turn to you know channel something automatic writing and just nothing but drawings of dicks. <laughs> <laughs> she just draws dick after dick after dick. She's like, listen, <laughs> it's not me. I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> What's on your mind, Sally? Well, her name would probably be more like Francesca. What's on your, exactly? What's on your mind? I know I was trying to think of traditional, like previous generation Italian names. An- uh, Antoinette. I don't know. Is Antoinette French? Or is it Italian? Well, uh, I can't what? think of. I can only think of. It's so sad. My brain has been ruined by video games. When I think of Italian names, it's like Mario and Luigi won't oh, let any no. other names pop in. Well, let's see. What? Huh? <laughs> so I'm trying to think. Well, uh, Angie, like Angela, that oh. is pretty it- Italian. Okay, Angela, Maria. Yeah, that can Ma- be. Maria yeah. can be a, a, okay, in, in cool. Italy. We oh, are. We we're wow. We're crushing it. <laughs> We've got three now. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, I just want you to know that in my mind, I just went to my childhood best friend, Sarah. Oh, yeah. Her grandparents were like, like, um, oh, my God. I, can, I was going to say fresh off the boat, which I don't think you're supposed to say. They were. Which is funny because, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people uh, came over in boats. My, they, they my, literally my, I have ancestors mine, who also came over on boats. Mine as well. Those, and they were fresh off the boat just uh, earlier in the last century. Yep, yep. And you can call them Polacks, and I'm not even going to yell yep, at you. Swedes, Norwegians, a yeah. lot of people traveled via boat. Yeah, but they... um. Their Sarah's mom is Angie, and her aunt was Marie. So that's how I got my two Italian <laughs> names. I thought Francesca was great. That was a good one. I, I'm you. buying Francesca. Oh, because I always wanted to have a little girl name her Francesca and call her Frankie. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, that's I know. Good. Well, you know, I, I got other kids with good names. <laughs> okay, are you ready to do some spooby shoutouts? I am. Uh, yes. Uh, now, are we doing Annabelle's first or Spoobies first? Oh, sorry, I meant to say Annabelle's. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to go or you to go? You can go. I would like to thank the following Annabelles for supporting what we do here on Patreon and helping us give to uh, charities every month. Ricardo, Jenny Stevens, Stefan Ybarra, uh, John Doyle, Nicole Schell, Amanda Hoyland, Carter Sproke. Sproke is an interesting last name. Mm. Uh, Madison Perkins, Courtney McMasters, Elizabeth Graham, Amy Kilgore, Rosie J, Madison Taylor, John Makepeace, Jameson Tazio, Dobby. Kyler. Uh-huh. That's gotta be from Harry Potter. Um, Kylie Gallagher, Dana Holson, Julia Camps, Yasmine La Cerna Riviera. 
No, I'm sorry. Lacerna Rivera. Yasmin, Lacerna Rivera, and then Brandy Caples, Angelica uh, Padron, Padron, P-A-D-R-O-N, Padron, Molly Jane Sear, Amanda Adams, and uh, uh, Mac, oh my gosh, uh, Amanda Adams Maxinchuk, Maxinchuk, and then Luis Gord, uh, Luis Goodwin. Woof. Woof. Tongue, tongue twisters this week. Some tongue twisters, yeah. Okay, I would like to thank the following Annabelles for their support on Patreon. Mackenzie Nara, Jack Thompson, Amanda Hoffman, Emily Casablanca, good name, <laughs> Danielle DeMarco, Fettuccini Alfredo. That's an Italian name. <laughs> Fettuccini Alfredo. Not Alf, like Alfredo, Afraid. Alfredo. Oh, Alfredo, nice. I, I, Fettuccini Alfredo. I love it. What a creepy pasta. <laughs> Tim Shewitt, Hannah Roscos. Jamie Bolter, Sebastian Padilla, Randy Rivago, Nicole Olson, Kimberly Syme or Simey, Lee Swarbrook. I know Swarbrooks. Anyways, Stephen Owens, Victoria Brady, Julia Walchuk, Lori Samowitz, Kelly Hovan. Also, are you my cousin? I have a cousin, mm-hmm. Kelly Hovan. Chris Gingerbeard Farron. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be Chris Gingerbeard Farron. <laughs> Sarah Denton, Denise. Hogue, Elizabeth Whitlow, Jeffrey W. Ashby, Crazy Angel 21, <laughs> and Sammy and Rick. Nice. And, and then I have the following Annabelle shout outs. I mean, uh, spooky, spooky shout outs. I am, woof. To Holly from Ty. Thanks for saying yes. Congrats to Aww. us on our engagement. That's awesome. To Jordan from Chandler. Congrats on our marriage on Friday the 13th. But so that's, we, it was last week. We're ahead. Oh, got it. Okay. Uh, happy birthday to Isaac Mon- Isaac Monkey from Mama and Da. And to Lid... Oh, boy. <sighs> this is a Polish name that I'm not good with. Lydumila <laughs> uh, from David. Happy anniversary. Is it L-Y-U-D-M-I-L-L-A? One L, but yes. Oh, Lud- Ludmila? Ludmila? Ludmila, I think. Ludmila? I think. Ludmila? He said it. He said in parentheticals or queen. So I don't know if this is her name or mm. if this is the Polish word for queen. Mm. But we were having a very quick exchange right before we recorded. So I wanted to just get yeah. it in here without yeah. doing any research. Ludmila? 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 Well, oh yeah, because you were just working on a bunch of Polish words for time I, suck. I was. And boy, boy that was that interesting. Tricky. Woo-wee. Or beautiful and fascinating. I, you know what? I find people who are bilingual, like in Poland, Polish is one of the languages. Uh-huh. It's like, good for you. If someone can speak um, Polish and Mandarin uh, Chinese. God bless. And English, which I think, I mean, and uh, and Icelandic. I was whatever just going to say. Whatever they speak in Iceland, you are a, just a linguist, linguistic master. You're a Jedi. Because you're really good at words with not either words wow. with a lot of vowels and not a lot of consonants or words with a lot of consonants with not a lot of vowels. It's yeah. like, what is happening? Uh, that is our show. Thank you for continuing to send in your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. You can email us for everything else at info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. And thank you to Logan Keith and Liz Hernandez for their work on social media. And to Logan again for running badmagicmerch.com. Thanks to Joe Paisley for producing and directing today. Zach Cohen for custom soundbed creation. Heather Rylander for organizing the My Story emails. And to book editor Drew Atana for polishing and preparing the listener stories for book number three. <laughs> Thanks to producers Sarah Finch and Olivia Lee for finding the first story I told today. And Sarah Finch for finding the second one. Uh, subscribe to Bad Magic Productions on YouTube if you want to watch a show in addition to listening. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram if you want more content. at Scared to Death Podcast. 
And we have a private Facebook group, Creeps and Peepers, full of horror lovers. Thank you to Liz Hernandez for moderating. If you don't want to hear any ads, if you want monthly bonus episodes, check out our Patreon and get the entire catalog ad-free and so much more. Enjoy your nightmares, Creeps and Peepers. Hope you are scared to death. Bye! If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through but have no home here within scared to death. Mad Magic Productions. 